Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud, and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Welcome back again. Thank you for listening. And this week, it's an incredible conversation with an amazing guest and a very timely topic and something I've been meaning to do since I began the podcast because we are in the midst of sugar hysteria aren't we? This kind of idea that sugar is toxic and sugar is responsible for, you know, all kinds of problems, weight gain amongst them. But bloody hell, I mean, sugar's being blamed for mental illnesses and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So what is going on here? Is this hysteria about sugar, does it have a basis in scientific reality or is it a load of diet culture bullshit? Well, my guest this week is here to help us unpick the claims and the controversies in this whole sugar insanity that we're suffering. So she is Marcy Evans. She is an RD from the United States and she is incredible. She is a dietitian. She's a speaker She's a trainer of other dietitians over in the United States, and she's an eating disorder specialist. And most important of all, all of her stuff comes from a very fierce anti-diet haze positive lens. So she has done a phenomenal job talking on this topic. And I did come across a blog of hers that she'd written on the data and the science about sugar addiction and all of these hypotheses that are going around about how bad sugar is. So I knew I needed to talk to her about this whole controversy because let's face it, don't we all need something to come back at with when we're talking to other school mums, like, okay, this is a personal experience, talking to other school mums about how much sugar's in the lunchbox and how that's going to make them all go crazy. And oh my goodness. So, and there's, there's people, right? There's the I quit sugar person, Sarah Wilson and her shiny hair and her insistence that sugar is the source of all evil. There's that ridiculous movie, the documentary called That Sugar Film, and he's really influencing perceptions about sugar, at least here in Australia. And then we've got the best-selling books like Sweet Poison and my God, it's so trendy to hate sugar. So I'm really hoping that today's interview will give all of you a little bit of material to come back and push back against any of this anti-sugar stuff that is so prevalent right now. And Gosh, Marcy is just a wonderful human being and I strongly encourage you to go and check out everything that she does at her website, marcyrd.com. And also coming up in April this year, Marcy will be doing an amazing body image workshop tour all around the United States. So four different cities around the United States. And guess who's facilitating the workshop with her? Our very own Fiona Sutherland, the incredible mindful dietitian and awesome anti-diet warrior herself. So how incredible would those workshops be if you can make it across to the United States in April? I think there's still some seats left in the Portland and Chicago workshops, but they're, they're filling up terrifically quickly, which is awesome to see. Okay, without further ado, I give you me and Marcy. So Marcy, thank you so, so much for coming on the show and talking to me today. 
Oh, Louise, are you kidding me? Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So what is firing you up at the moment? Okay, well, what is firing me up in a positive way is to be here with you and have this conversation with you. And what's been firing me up for quite some time, and I know that we're going to get into it, is this issue around sugar addiction and this these questions and worries about food and sugar being addictive. Oh, uh, yes. I cannot uh, wait to get into it. I mean, neither. This, ever since I started the podcast, I knew we were going to have to talk about sugar because <laughs> it's so all over the place in diet culture, isn't it? One, that it's an addiction and two, that it's kind of toxic and it's causing all kinds of problems, health problems. And so it basically sugar is responsible for everything that's bad in the world and we have to kind of police it. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Yes. So yeah, what have you heard that really got you started on this mission to change people's perceptions about sugar? You know what? That is such an interesting question. I'm not even sure that I'm going to be able to trace it back, but I do know a few years ago, you know what? Do you know where I think it actually started for me? Maybe seven, six or seven years ago, I was doing a level two training with Evelyn Triboli, who's the co-author of Intuitive Eating. Mm. And she shared some of the research on food addiction in the training. And I think that getting into the research with her guidance was so helpful and so interesting to me. So then that kind of led me down a bit of a rabbit hole and I did some more reading and some more writing about it on my own. And I'm certainly, you know, wouldn't call myself an expert on this. I do my best in that I tried to really follow the research and understand Mm -hmm. what written about and sort of frame it within my own clinical experience, you know, it makes me wish I had a a PhD in neuroscience overnight. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's a rabbit hole, right? There's so much to learn. Yeah. And it's so clear that unless you have some unbiased researchers really looking at the data and presenting what's there, you can easily misunderstand, I think, the picture of sugar addiction. And, you know, you and I were talking, you know, before we began recording this, that we see that happening. We see other professionals who are jumping on this Mm. idea of food addiction and using it to sell products, to sell supplements, to sell books, to sell programs. And how confusing that is for just our everyday public who aren't scientists and who don't read the literature to see someone with that MD or PhD after their name. And it really kind of fuels what they experience and sort of reinforces this idea of, you know, I'm out of control. I can't be trusted. You know, Mm. food one thing in my life that I can't manage, it must be that I'm an addict because they sort of feel like I don't have any other explanation for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I mean, I see a lot of clients who come in saying I'm addicted to sugar or I feel out of control and it really fits the rhetoric of diet culture because it's definitely trendy to be kind of viewing sugar as an addiction. So, and then I think people start to frame it like that and then they come in thank God, you know, to see me <laughs> rather than someone who would treat quote unquote their sugar addiction. But it's, it's a way, I guess, of framing it that's really, really popular. And it's so hard, like you say, when even the science can be biased in favor of just thinking of sugar as, as an addiction to kind of dig underneath that and to try really hard to perceive the evidence objectively. Yeah, that is so complicated and that is so difficult is that 
diet culture. And what I mean when I say that is this idea of needing to restrict and manage and control your intake, particularly for whether it's in the guise of one's health or one's size or shape, is that the nature of diet culture from a brain-based perspective or a neurobiological perspective actually primes a person to have an experience with food that feels addictive-like. And Mm. so they're engaging in a pattern of restriction and that it is the actual restriction that creates this feeling of being addicted, feeling out of control, binging. And so it's the very person who's been on diets who is actually primed from a physiological level to relate to food in such a way that looks and feels to them as if it's addiction. Mm. And so I feel, I think a tremendous amount of compassion for people's lived experience that that is very, very real for them. Their Mm. experience of being out of control, you know, eating in secret, buying large amounts of food, feeling out of control every time they allow themselves to have something or, or feel that they kind of lose control. That's a very scary way to feel. And when you have people who are intelligent, capable, creative, resilient, and so functional in many aspects of their lives. And to have this one area that they just can't get a handle on, it's hard to be able to explain it. And you know, often what our culture teaches is, well, you just need to sort of like, you know, tighten up the rules, recommit, kind of get back on the program. Mm -hmm. And there is without knowing it, this pattern that's going to reinforce their experience of, well, you see, I can't be trusted because look, I've done it again. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. It feels so real that I must be out of control with sugar, for example, and I must never have it. That's the only answer because if I ever have it, I I eat the world. Yeah. Helping people to pull back and see that it's the restriction, the lack of permission to eat it that causes the drive to want to go overboard. That's really something that a lot of us haven't considered. And I love that kind of when the lights go on for people, when they kind of get to that point of, oh, actually, you know, I've never thought of it like that, that perhaps it is the idea of not being able to have it that makes me obsessed with it. That's right. Yeah. And it's really interesting too because this is also borne out in the research. Now, I am not about to say that humans are like rodents because, you know, (laughs) many ways we are not, but a lot of the sugar addiction research has been done in rodents. And I think it's important to note that the research is pretty clear on this, that the only time you see rodents consuming sugar in a way that looks addictive is only when they have intermittent access. So their ability to access sugar comes and goes. Sometimes they have access to it. Sometimes it's restricted. But when the rodents have unconditional access to the sugar, they don't binge on it. They don't demonstrate addictive-like eating patterns. And so again, we want to be careful in terms of how much we extrapolate from animal-based research, but it is very interesting, right? Yeah, that that is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, yes, yes. Because if it was truly addictive, then it wouldn't matter how often the rats had access to it. That's exactly right. You know, and the Mm. authors, I have a little quote here because I think that they really summarize it in such a succinct way. They say, intermittent access is critical to the development of binging. This paradigm promotes a form of eating under uncertainty because food availability is unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, we're conscious living, breathing humans, you know, that if we decide to go on a diet, we know that we're choosing or electing to decrease our intake or cut out certain foods, but our body doesn't know that. So it's going to send signals to be like, whoa, 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 we've got to get consistent intake here. And you see that play out in adults who have a longstanding dieting history or eating disorder history where the body has undergone this inconsistent, unpredictable access to food. Mm, mm. So interesting. Yeah, so it's physiological as well as psychological restriction from certain types of foods that creates binge behavior. That's exactly right. And I hope that that information helps people to feel less ashamed about any binge behavior that they might experience to really see this is this is a completely normal response to restriction. It's textbook. We can predict it. We can explain it from a physiological standpoint that we would expect it, that there isn't anything wrong with you. There isn't anything wrong with your willpower or your character. You know, this is a survival mechanism built into us to keep us alive, to keep us well. Mm, mm. And to keep us accessing all kinds of different foods. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That is a really good message for people. And it does challenge the whole idea of food addiction or sugar addiction. And you're talking about that research. And I wanted to let people know that there's this thing called the DSM-5, which is like the statistical manual for psychological disorders. And they, they did some overview research on where do we stand on sugar addiction. And basically that came up with a no. There's, there's no firm evidence for quote unquote sugar addiction. So it's coming from a lot of different areas in the science, in the objective science, that this is just not a thing. And about where we do hear about it is like you say, the people who are selling the programs, the celebrities who are endorsing this kind of stuff, that it's an addiction and that the solution is restriction. Right. I'm glad that you point out the DSM and that you summarize that so well that you know what seems to be concluded when you really look at the data that exists, which there isn't a lot of it, There's, which sort of points to the fact that we need more research to understand what's happening, but what they look at and summarize is to say, this really doesn't seem to be any different than when we look at disordered eating patterns, that this kind of falls under the category of of eating disorders, not to say anybody who feels out of control has an eating disorder. That's certainly not the case, but the mechanisms that they're looking at don't seem to be this new thing that we can label an addiction. It just seems to be Mm. another way of looking at, yeah, this is what happens when eating gets chaotic and we are restricting and dieting. This isn't really expressing an actual chemical addiction. No. at this point, isn't actually accurate given the data that we have. And, you know, one of the things that I also worry about is that, you know, some of the research is trying to use an addiction model as a way to explain obesity. I mean, I don't like that 
term because it pathologizes higher weight. But saying that we're going to explain a person's size by the fact that they must have some sort of addiction, like that line of thinking, listeners understand it's such a problematic line of thinking because already you have a bias going into the hypothesis that higher weight is already, it's assumed to be pathology. And we know that weight ranges have always existed for humans. There have always been people in larger bodies. There will always be people in larger bodies. And it's possible for a person to be in a larger body and there's no need to explain it away. Mm. This is their body. This is just their normal, natural body. And that to be assuming that there has to be some sort of pathology or some sort of cause really reinforces weight stigma. And this assumption that higher weight must mean there's there's some sort of disease lurking beneath the surface that's caused this thing. Mm. I think we're very, very, very careful when we talk about this and that, you know, assuming that a higher weight is caused by addiction is a very, very weight stigma informed way to go about developing a hypothesis. Yeah. But that's everywhere. That weight stigma assumption that quote unquote obesity is always pathological is kind of everywhere. And it's interesting because actually also in the DSM, they talk about how quote unquote obesity is not a mental illness. Quote unquote obesity is not a disease. So really clearly here in Australia, at least, it's not a disease. It's not a mental illness. I think over in the States, the American Medical Association have called it a disease, right? Yeah, that's where we're not doing so well over here in the U.S. because it is declared as a disease. Obesity is considered to be a disease. That is really, really problematic. I know a lot of clinicians were thrilled when this passed because it meant that we were going to be able to get reimbursement for our services. But oh my gosh, we are in a big problem that I hope we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of. But yeah, this assumption that larger body equals illness is, you know, I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but really problematic. Oh my gosh, I know. And look, we have a lot of forces here in Australia, including the Australian Medical Association and the Obesity Society, you know, all of these people who are pushing for it to be regarded as a disease, mostly, as you said, to obtain Medicare rebates and to push things like surgeries on larger bodies, you know, more, more and more. So I don't think anything good comes of it. You know, I mean, quote unquote, obesity is simply referring to a BMI, you know, it's kind of like saying tallness is a disease, just a physical characteristic that might be correlated with various health issues is not in and itself a disease. But, you know, so much bias and assumption goes into all of this stuff. And it's really encouraging to know that there's people like you in the world who are working to undo that stigma and really objectively look at the science and get the message out. Yeah, we're doing our best. <laughs> we're doing our best. I think the, you did kind of like a newsletter. You did a summary of all of the research on sugar and put it right out there, didn't you? I did. I was reading this really helpful research article. It's entitled Sugar Addiction, the State of the Science. It was published in 2016. And really what my blog post does, and I, if you want, I can send you the link, is that yeah. I tried really hard to summarize in an accessible way the main points of the study. 
Now, the study in and of itself has some really fantastic details that I don't get into in, you know, in the blog post. Obviously, the study itself is 15 pages, you know, and this is a thousand word blog post, but, you know, I really tried to consolidate the most important take home points. And one of the things that I think is most important is that right now, there is zero evidence that humans can develop a physiological chemical addiction to sugar. Mm-hmm. I wow. Think that's, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> you know, that that's a really big statement. And that can be different from a person's experience of how they experience food. And often, excuse me, the Yale food addiction scale is cited in the research. And the Yale food addiction scale is such a problematic tool because what this tool measures is a person's felt sense of addiction. Yeah. And I would never argue a person's experience. Their experience is real Mm. and it is true for them. They are experiencing something and it's being named as addiction. And there's a big difference between a person's felt experience being real and valid versus translating that and using it as evidence that addiction at the cellular level is a phenomenon that's happening. Mm. That is such an inappropriate leap to make. And I feel genuinely confused by practitioners who are making that leap because I know most people are very well intended. I really do believe that. Even if, you know, I might disagree in terms of what a person is putting out into the world, you know, that there are colleagues who I know who are well intended colleagues. And I just feel so confused. How is it that you can suspend (laughs) real sort of rational, scientific, critical thought in these areas as it relates to food and weight? And well, it's it definitely to, a thing, isn't it? I mean, it has a lot to do with bias. Yeah. Can you explain to me, or you know, to people listening to, when you say genuine physiological addiction, what does that actually mean? So when, and this is where you know, I wish I was a neuroscientist, but I'm going to do my best. That you know, a lot of what we see, and we've seen this in the headlines, that people say, "Oh my gosh!" But when you look at a brain of a person who's doing cocaine versus a brain of a person who's had sugar, that those same pathways in the brain, those same neurological pathways light up, those same pleasure sites light up. That is very true, but that doesn't mean we are looking at the exact same process between what's happening with sugar versus what's happening with drugs and the chemical dependency that can happen with, say, cocaine. Mm-hmm. We have these natural reward pathways, and we have reward pathways that light up for all sorts of things. We see natural reward pathways that light up when a mother is holding their baby. We see mm-hmm. natural pathways light up when we hear music, when we smile and laugh, when we feel the sunshine. And that often what is described is, well, because you see these same neural pathways lighting up, it means that sugar is addictive. No, 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 no. That is (laughs) a really big leap. That doesn't mean that's what's happening. And in fact, what this article does such a nice job of going into detail and that I actually didn't know before is that 
drugs actually hijack a food's natural reward pathway. So we're seeing something natural that we're evolved to find pleasure in food when we're having, say, sugar or having a meal or whatever. And that what we see is that when a person is doing, say, cocaine, is that the drugs are hijacking that natural reward pathway. Mm. So does that answer the question? Do you think that explains it in a way that feels a little bit more understandable? Yeah, yeah. So we do have natural reward centers in our brain that light up when we do pretty much anything pleasurable. But when we have drugs, it's like hijacking those natural pathways. That's right. Yeah, that seems really simple, doesn't it? Because there's a real difference. But that is all we see over and over again. The addiction justification is, well, because we enjoy it, it must be addictive. Yeah, it's going to be bad. You know, one of the other things that's also mentioned that I think is really interesting and really important, and this gets into neurotransmitters and kind of gets into very into a lot of science. But one of the things that the authors talked about is that we do see that dopamine, which is like a pleasure chemical in our brain that's released, is that there are some changes in the dopamine response that happens in response to sugar consumption that can feel similar to what's going on with the person who's doing cocaine. However, those changes in the dopamine response where that pleasure goes up even higher is only happens under that intermittent access. And so to me, what's being labeled as, whoa, this is bad. You better stay away from sugar. The actual truer story is our bodies are so wise that if we're being deprived, they are going to find a physiological mechanism to encourage you to get food, to get calories, to get sugar, which is the most accessible form of nutrition for the brain. Mm. It's going to make that even more salient. So if we think about that, that's really from an evolutionary standpoint, very protective that the body's going, whoa, 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 we're kind of not getting our needs met here. We better amplify the response of pleasure, you know, so we're more likely to seek this out. And oh, so yes. yeah. From that evolutionary perspective, I think it gives us some real insight that our body is doing something wise and that if we're fueling ourselves in a reliable way and that we're getting access to a variety of foods and that we're adequately nourishing ourselves, that those responses don't become amplified. Yes, because if something's not scarce, then we don't need to amplify the pleasure that we have when we obtain it because it's always there. Exactly. And if it's always there, we're going to get some pleasure, but it's not going to be quite so extreme. And then we can relax into the relationship with that kind of food source. That's exactly right. And the brain imaging research is so interesting because it really demonstrates this amplified pleasure response. And we see the amplification happen with foods that are labeled as bad or have been deprived. And, you know, you may have heard me say this before. I, maybe I need to come up with more, more examples or interesting examples because people have heard me talk before. They will have heard me say this, but I think it's a really relevant example is that, you know, if you have ever been around a two-year-old and you're in a room and there are toys everywhere for them to play with and they suddenly spot your cell phone and you quickly hide it, right? Yeah. All they, want, all they want is the thing they're not supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely about, you know, the carpet that is covered in toys. They want the single thing that they can tell, oop, 
you know, mom or dad or auntie doesn't want me to have this thing. And, you know, we still have that brain inside of us. I don't think that we're all that different. Oh, we are so toddlers, aren't we? Like we just want the stuff that we're not supposed to have. Totally. Totally compelling. And I see that, you know, sometimes I go to kids' birthday parties a lot because I'm a parent. And, you know, because of the sugar hysteria, a lot of the kids, like I have a couple of friends who will not allow their kids to eat the sugary treats at the parties and they bring their own food to the parties and stuff like that. And it is, it's a guaranteed no brainer that those are the kids who are nicking the food off the table and going into the bathroom to eat it. Oh yes. Yeah. absolutely. And I watch my kids who have never been restricted from any kind of food just, you know, it's take it or leave it. It's not that kind of fascination with the sugary treats on the table. It's they can connect with their bodies and figure out what to eat because it hasn't been restricted. Right. Right. And I think it's so hard for parents to parent around food because parents who are in the generation, you know, where they have youngish children grew up with the message that everything must be measured, restrained, restricted, not allowed, and that, you know, bodies can't be trusted. And so it's no wonder that it can feel so hard and so scary when you're seeing your child around these foods that if you naturally haven't had the chance to develop self-trust around them, you don't have a basis to believe that my child can also manage this. And it comes from a very well-intentioned place, right? Is that I want my child to be healthy. I don't want them to overdo it. I want to make sure they're getting a variety of foods. And yet we see it play out where that well-intentioned place really gets in the way of that self-regulation and starts playing around with the neurobiology that if something's off limits, you can't have it, don't eat it, stop, 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 just increases that saliency and it increases that drive and becomes this really difficult catch-22. So true. Like we are a planet of intergenerational dieters and we have grown up out of connection with our bodies and out of connection with food. And then we start parenting and then we see our kids display this odd behavior around food and like it's like the whole kind of time we're not pulling back far enough to see the trap to see that it's the restriction and the lack of body trust that's creating these odd behaviors around food it's not the food that's right I think that for so many people that this is something that then has to be taught and has to be learned, you know, like your podcast, for instance, because it's so foreign. Of course, there are some people who grow up in a home where diet culture isn't front and center. I was actually very, very, very fortunate where I grew up in a home where parents never dieted, food wasn't that big of a deal. We ate, it's so funny. I look back as a dietitian and I laugh at how not particularly helpful my food environment was. I mean, my mom made dinner for us. I grew up kind of in a traditional way. You know, I grew up and she was making dinner that she was making. I mean, one of my favorite things was chicken Dorito casserole. Oh, yes. (laughs) And breakfast were, you know, Eggo waffles or cinnamon toast crunch. And it just, none of it was a big deal. I mean, Mm. food just all kinds of stuff around. And I feel so fortunate. I feel like sort of one of not many people who grew up in a home 
where it just, food didn't have much charge, but you know, Mm -hmm. then to grow up and you go over to your friend's house or you, you know, start to get introduced to diet culture in other ways. And it sort of feels a little bit inevitable, but like you said, I think you framed it so well, this sort of intergenerational dieting that's handed down. And unless you're one of the few people who grew up in a home without diet culture, you really do have to learn it. It's like learning a new language because if you've, you know, it's kind of like, do you know, Aaron Flores? Yes. I love Aaron. (laughs) You know, he used the awesome analogy from the movie, The Matrix, that if you've grown up in The Matrix, you don't know anything outside The Matrix. Exactly. It's not modeled, you know, it's not, that's not what's modeled in anywhere in our culture, in our sort of social media, our media culture, I should say. Mm, mm. Yeah, I love that matrix analogy. And I use the analogy of diet culture prison, like we're all inside the prison trying desperately to kind of follow the rules that are given to us by diet culture. And we can't understand why we keep escaping and marauding. (laughs) 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 And if we pull back and say, we're probably doing that because we're being locked up for no reason. Exactly. Yeah, that's what we need to do. Destroy the prison, you know, live outside the matrix and start to connect again and disconnect from all of these messages. But, you know, I think, you know, what you were saying about how you grew up is so lovely. And I think, you know, I grew up, you know, a little bit less relaxed around food because of my mum's dieting and feelings about her body. But even then, I think it was less charged, as you said, than it is right now in 2018. Because like that constant barrage of messaging about whatever you eat is going to impact your health and you'd better not get fat and you'd better not die. And like, that's the reason to eat is to like be a morally responsible, healthy citizen. It's just so intense right now. And we've got these, we've got these two things that are happening here in Australia over the last couple of years. There was this film, a documentary that came out called That Sugar Film by a guy called Damon Gamo, who basically did a documentary along the lines of Michael Moore's Supersize Me, where, so this dude, he's not a health professional he's an actor with a six pack and he gets on and he sort of tells us all how healthy he is and he has never had any added sugar. And, you know, he's basically a model for healthy living. And because his wife's pregnant and he's heard that Australians are eating far too much sugar, that he's going to eat what normal Australians eat in terms of added sugar. So he spends a whole film basically trying to eat 40 teaspoons of added sugar a day. And then of Mm -hmm. course he does the kind of pre and post health measures, quote unquote health measures. It's just like, it's one big scare tactic, this film. Like I really couldn't get through it because it was so judgy and it just instilled fear and lack of body trust. And we got that, that film went like literally viral here. And they're even starting to put it into schools as quote-unquote nutrition education. I was shocked last year to hear that at the Obesity and Eating Disorders Conference in Brisbane, they, they had Damon there as a keynote speaker talking to people who work with eating disorders. So we have that and we have this also this person called Sarah Wilson who's one of these shiny-haired lifestyle bloggers who wrote a book called I Quit Sugar Mm. and that went gangbusters as well. So it's just these fads with these shiny, beautiful people and these scary messages that are really 
taking that shaky science of food addiction to the next level and making like basically our whole planet is getting terrified of sugar and everything we've been talking about with what you know scaring people off certain food groups and how that actually sets up a fascination with it and also alters our dopamine and pleasure receptors like this this is not going to be a great outcome no it makes me feel feel so sad these types of films and books that are written in such a scary way and that really prey what I believe in this sort of gets a little philosophical is that I think that as human beings, we really deeply grapple with how vulnerable we all are, right? There's so little in our lives that we can control. There's so much unpredictability, whether it's you know job security, whether it's health, whether it's losing someone to death, you know, suddenly that mm. there's about being a human that is so deeply scary and there's so little that we can protect against that it's a natural human desire to think about, I'm going to do everything that I can do to feel in control and to keep sort of the bad things at bay. I believe that that's sort of just kind of part of our humanity and that part of our humanity is very, very vulnerable to getting hooked in to these kinds of messages where then there is a a quote unquote sort of simple solution, right? Stop eating sugar. Mm. That allows us to feel, you know, sort of psychologically a bit more at peace, you know, to be like, okay, I'm doing my part. There was this bad thing that causes all of these bad things to happen and I'm not going to eat that bad thing anymore. And Mm tends to happen. And, you know, I haven't seen this film. I, I don't know these people, but usually the pattern's kind of similar. We've seen this play out over time, mm-hmm. right? Is that you're able to actually critically look at the sort of faulty reasoning and the conclusions that are being drawn is that this is so far from the realm of most people's day-to-day experience. Mm -hmm. And we get so lost in the minutia of the teaspoons of sugar that we're missing the much larger picture of we all have this innate ability, most of us have this innate ability to tap into our own internal wisdom. And that if we're connected and if we're really listening and we have support and we have access to healthcare and we have people in our lives and meaningful connection, these sort of bigger picture things that we're usually doing pretty well. And yeah. that is not something that is often sorted through in the research when we're getting lost in the details of the teaspoons of sugar, that it is all of these different pieces coming together that allow us to live you know, vibrant lives and, you know, getting on this sort of bandwagon of all of this fear mongering around, it's the sugar, it's the sugar. You know, we get really, I think it's very easy to get trapped into that scary, scary place. Yeah. Well, it keeps us being really vulnerable consumers to whatever product is being pushed, doesn't it? Because, you know, telling people that innately they can manage their own relationship with food without buying any products. That's not great for people who are writing the books on, you know, there's something terribly wrong and here's my solution. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. Like I said, I only watched the first 20 minutes because I started to just feel like throwing the computer around the room. So he starts this mission and for breakfast he has some cereal, you know, quite sweetened cereal with 
apple juice and one of those low fat yogurts that have lots of sugar added. And that was his breakfast. And then he kept going through the day with foods like that. And as someone who is an intuitive eater and thinking about like, what would that be like in my body to have that as a breakfast? The, the instant feeling I got was like overwhelm, like, oh, that is just so intensely sweet. So my, what I would love to do is like another documentary where you kind of pit intuitive eating and tuned eating with these kinds of ridiculous experiments, because you know what, you just don't need, if you're attuned, you are going to be okay. You're going to not feel good eating in that way. Right. And that you don't need this sort of power over rule coming in, these sort of scare tactics. And this is where it really supports, even from a neurobiological perspective, is that when you're really honoring what's there at the baseline is sort of communicating to you, you know, what's going to feel right for you is that then you aren't dealing with the backlash of the don't have that scenario that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, They're not going to get that deprivation response. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting. And I have done these really fun experiments with my clients who really feel really drawn to sugar. And I had this experience with one client in particular that was really fun. She said, you know, Marcy, we're working on intuitive eating. This is all kind of seems, seems hard for me to believe. You know, she had a history of an eating disorder. By the time she came to me, she no longer had an eating disorder, but you know, had the remnants of diet culture that she was still battling with. And she said, you know, she said, one of my favorite foods are gummy bears. She's mm-hmm. like, I love gummy bears so much. She's like, so are you telling me that according to intuitive eating, I can have gummy bears for lunch? And I said, I said, you can have whatever you want for lunch, but remember with intuitive eating, an important component of intuitive eating is attunement. And what that means is that you're paying attention to the experience, right? Mm. And so I said, you know, why don't we do an experiment between now and when I see you again? Why don't you have gummy bears for lunch and have as many gummy bears as you think that you need that will kind of keep you full until, you know, when you decide to have a snack or whatever and pay attention to what that's like. And then we'll talk about it. And she said, okay, I'm willing to do it. She said, this seems totally nuts, but I'm willing to do it. I think she was kind of thinking, you know, I'm going to disprove you. I'm just going to keep wanting all bears. And she yeah. came back and you could probably predict, you know, she did the gummy bear experiment. And I said, well, what was that like? And she said, well, I ate nothing but gummy bears for lunch. And I felt really unwell. Like I felt kind of sick to my stomach and my head wasn't feeling great. And I didn't really ever get full or satisfied. And so I was like still wanting like a meal later in the day. And I said, okay, you know, it was kind of what I was expecting. I said, so let's imagine that you do want gummy bears as a part of your lunch. If you were to make up what would be the perfect lunch, what would it be? And I don't remember what she said, but she basically described this really satisfying meal where gummy bears were on the side, but something Mm -hmm. else was and it was, you know, nutritionally really balanced. And then, so she tried that out the next time and she's like, I feel physically so much better. And it's interesting that I'm not nearly as preoccupied by the gummy bears because Mm. I know that I can have as many as I want that make me feel well. And so she was able to to sort that out. She didn't need to calculate out the number of teaspoons of sugars and whatever, how many gummy bears or sort of kind of count out. (laughs) She could get there on her own. Oh, yes. And it's, I mean, all the elements of that are so empowering for her. She doesn't have to follow your rules. She's 
Yeah. She's discovering that she real her body really is very wise and that she can just tune in and have a whole variety of stuff. And she's actually had that lived experience, that learned experience of I really can trust and I really can see the value here, which is, I just love that. I love that aspect of this work. That it was so cool, you know, and then she was able to realize that when she was sitting down and eating all of the gummy bears, it wasn't because that was what she was genuinely craving. It was a reaction a reaction to, I shouldn't be having this, a reaction to a natural reaction to the deprivation, the bad foods, I shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't. And once we worked on freeing that up, she was able to connect with, oh, it turns out that the amount of gummy bears that I genuinely want and that doesn't make me feel sick is different than when I'm eating out of sort of the backlash of that deprivation. Mm, Yeah. It's so different. And we keep looking for solutions in the next set of rules, like solutions in the next diet or, you know, more and more strict. And that's actually the opposite of what we need to do to really get peace with our relationship with food. That's right. That's right. I think one of the things that's difficult, I don't know how you feel about this, Louise, but I think one of the things that I struggle with, you know, when I have these conversations on various podcasts is that it can sound as if I'm describing a process that is very simple and that's very simplistic. But often for people who have a really complicated relationship with food because of you know dieting history and eating disorder history, that overcoming the consequences of physical and psychological deprivation usually takes some time and often does require help from a professional. You mm-hmm. know, that if hearing me describe this gummy bear story, it sounds like, you know, I gave her this one experiment and then this problem solved and, you know, issue fixed is that there are layers of complexity of beginning to redevelop the skills of self-trust. So I just don't want any of your listeners to feel like, you know what, Marcy, I've heard these messages before. I've tried it, but I keep finding myself really stuck that they aren't like a hopeless case, you know, that the, yeah. the deep of kind of getting things things sorted, unfortunately, sometimes take some time and take some work and take some expertise from a professional. Yes, exactly. It does take a lot of time to unlearn all the rules and to tune in and listen to the body. And it's very difficult to do that in diet culture when that whole process of unlearning and, and attunement is being challenged like literally challenged every single day by a conversation that you overhear at work or some piece on the news about, you know, sugar and how bad it is. Like it's constantly being challenged by diet culture. So having a close relationship with a non-diet practitioner is so important and it does take time, but it's incredibly worth it because, you know, getting to that point of, you know, actually living outside the matrix or, you know, destroying diet prison that's just awesome. Yeah. And my is that these conversations are helpful for people. You know, I am acutely aware that many people do not have access to support from a professional, maybe based on where they live or they don't have the financial resources. And so, you know, my hope is that these conversations do feel 
useful, or we can you know, point you to other free resources or other conversations or other clinicians who are, you know, putting positive things out into the world. Ideally, we'd be able to make support more accessible, but it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. But as you said, this is why, you know, finding podcasts, talking to people like you, getting the messages out with, because there is a huge online community and a lot of resources around. And, you know, it's fantastic that you are doing stuff, for example, like that newsletter, because you took the science and you put it out there in everyday language. But you also, you know, a lot of those scientific studies like this are behind paywalls. And so it's hard to get them for most people without paying. So, yeah, information, unbiased information is powerful. You know, I really do, that's so thoughtful of you to say, is that I really do try, and I know so many of us do, try to put really useful things out into the world that people can access and make use of. You know, that I try really hard, you know, with my newsletter to put out things that feel practically helpful that feel like information or feel like tools that can really change a person's experience in their relationship to food in an accessible, hopefully not terribly overwhelming sort of way, you know, that we're all trying to kind of do our part in the, in different ways. You know, you do this podcast, I write and, you know, try to speak as much as I can. And I think that one of the things that can I think get a little bit overwhelming for those of us in the world of anti-dieting is that we are aware of how small our voices can seem in relationship to the larger cultural narrative. Mm-hmm. That what we're selling, quote unquote, we really, really deeply believe in. We do it from the bottom of our hearts and we do it because we genuinely care about this work and we feel so strongly about it. And it will never be as sexy as... <laughs> As anything in diet culture, you know, my friends will joke with me and they'll say, oh, Marcy, you know, you're going to develop a a franchise and write a book and all these things and get rich. And I laugh because I'm like, (laughs) what do I have to sell while it is so much better than diet culture? It's never going to make me rich and famous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the point of our work is to put us out of work, which I love. (laughs) Yes. Yes. disheartening to me how busy my group practice is. You know, we want to work ourselves out of a job. (laughs) Yeah, we totally like my be all and end all is to be able to quit and become a florist like I always wanted to do. So, but yeah, with more people talking, we will do this and I will definitely put up the newsletter that you have prepared up on the show notes so everyone can download it and maybe helpfully leave it in your kids teacher's classroom or on the cake table at your kid's party. So (laughs) (laughs) just a little. (laughs) And just, yeah, just, I guess to everyone who's listening, next time you hear a sugar is going to kill you message to remember this conversation and to think critically about what the research actually says, which is totally different to what all of these celebrity endorsements are saying. Yeah, I would so appreciate it, you know, making that message, you know, accessible and, you know, we'll all just do our part trying to pass it around. Mm, Brilliant. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so my pleasure. I hope that, you know, our conversation will have resonated for your listeners and and hopefully empowered them and, and helped them to feel better in, you know, this world that we live in, that there's so much coming at us that can leave us feeling so down and so badly about ourselves. You know, I hope that this conversation will 
lift some of the heavy feelings and some of the sort of self-criticism and, and help people to feel, feel more mm. empowered. Yeah. And just to get that connection between like, if you're feeling addicted to sugar, it's probably because of the intermittent access that you're giving yourself. And, you know, although it's scary, let's try something completely different. Let's try the intuitive eating approach and see what can happen there. Because the answer to so-called addiction is never going to be restriction. That's just going to make everything worse. Oh, boom. <laughs> that is the perfect line to end on. You know, that the temptation when you're feeling out of control is like batting down the hatches and, you know, more restriction and more rules, but actually leaning in that opposite direction and saying, okay, how can I more consistently actually give myself permission to eat these things is going to get you out of that trap. Yeah. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again. And all the best. Pleasure. Oh, same to you. Thank you. Bye. What a breath of fresh air and rational thought is Marcy Evans. Thank you so much for coming on and blowing up all of this bullshit about sugar that's flying everywhere. I really enjoyed that podcast episode. It gave me a lot of ammunition for my next mum's group meetups. And I know that it's going to help everybody out there as well. So, you know, encourage people to share this podcast as far and wide as possible because this is science and we need to actually get the the pushback happening around sugar because my goodness, it's gone out of control. So that's it for another week from me and I will be back next week with a fresh steaming pile of diet culture bullshit and I literally can't wait to bring you the next topic because it's an absolute explosion of awesomeness. In the meantime, I wanted to tell you about a special that is running at the moment. So everyone's heard about our Untrapped Masterclass, which is a three-month deep dive into healing your relationship with food, your body, exercise and basically pulling back and pushing out of diet culture. It's an awesome course. And what we're doing is running a special, I'm calling it the Anti-Diet Revolution Masterclass. And what I'm doing is gathering a whole group of people together to start the Untrapped Masterclass at the same time. And what we're doing is starting at this Sunday. So the 1st of April, Easter Sunday, that's correct here in Australia, because I really want to gather a whole bunch of people together to start on the same day. And over the following 12 weeks, I'm going to be every week in our Facebook group talking people through the topic of the week, which is not something I normally do. I'm often there in the Facebook community, but not in a structured way going through the material. So this is a really interesting added value for this masterclass starting on Sunday, the 1st of April. And I also wanted to kick off interest by giving everyone a nice little discount. So if you've been pondering and thinking that maybe this program would be right for you, then now is the time to do it. Seize the day, people, because there is a 10% discount that's running all the way up until midnight on Sunday night, the 1st of April. So if you want to join, please come and join. And to get the 10% discount, just enter the voucher code anti-diet, anti-diet. And that will give you automatically a nice 10% discount. It will run out. So it's a very limited time that the special is running for. But get in there. Let's band together and let's push back against diet culture crap. I really look forward to getting this thing going. Okay. So as I said, that's all for me this week. I will be back next week. In the meantime, trust no one. Think critically. Push back against diet culture. Untrap from the crap. <laughs>